welcome to Conscious Thinking, the podcast for the Conscious Advertising Network. I'm your host, S.A. Davies, Chief Operating Officer across the mayor for Dentu Creative. Today, I'm joined by Jake Dubbins, founder of the Conscious Advertising Network, Anna Longley, Chief Sustainability Officer for Dentsu International, Susie Rook, Head of Group and Brand Design at SSE PLC, and Stephen Woodford, CEO of the Advertising Association. With COP27 fast approaching, in this episode, we discuss what, if any, meaningful progress our industry has made towards climate and sustainability accountability over the last year. Welcome, everybody. Uh, It's good to have you with us today. A significant and substantial topic to talk about. So we'll dive straight in. I'll start with you, Jake. Cast your mind back to November 9th, 2021. Cannes just published its open letter ahead of COP26 for global action to tackle climate misinformation and disinformation. What was the reaction at the time from the industry when you published that letter, specifically those you name in the COP26 presidency, the CEOs of social and tech platforms that you sort of directly speak to? And What's been the continued progress to the requests made in the letter? Yeah, I think the reaction was really good. I mean, we thought we knew the reaction from actual CAN members would be good because we'd sort of talked about it and consulted beforehand. But we were... I guess, pretty bowled over by the support that it got from the climate experts as well. So within business, you know, SSE, Virgin Media 02 supported it, as did Sky. And SSE and Sky were both, you know, principal partners of of COP26. But we were also then supported by one of the key architects of the Paris Climate Agreement, um, a lady called Laurence Tubiana, a guy called Bill Hare, who won a Nobel Prize for uh, his work uh, with the, the IPCC. We also then got support of cultural figures like Massive Attack and so on. So all of those different groups. So this, what we've always tried to do with the Conscious Advertising Network is, is build a big tent. So we we delivered on that with the letter. So it was, it was very well received. And again, just to kind of, I guess, ground it in the context, you know, with Lawrence Tibiana supporting it, you know, obviously the Paris Climate Agreement says that we need to aim for 1.5 to 2 degrees of warming. And still, we don't. We're not on track for that, and and I don't think most people understand that we're on track for two point four to two point seven degrees as it stands, and that's with the pledges that were made at COP twenty six. So misinformation is an emerging, well known threat. The IPCC, in its February report, talked about misinformation being a key blocker to climate action and maintaining the status quo. And it also talked about that we have a rapidly closing window to a livable future. So I kind of, you know, I always sort of dwell on those words, a livable future. I think that's like a terrifying sort of phrase. So that's how it was received at the time. Um, You know, the gravity of the subject that we're discussing is vast. And since then, you know, we've seen some great progress. You know, we worked closely with Google to co-author the first ever global climate misinformation policy across all of their products and services uh, that launched at COP. Pinterest adopted pretty much the whole of the universal definition that we've put in our latest climate manifesto globally, both for content and ads. And Twitter have also taken steps in ads as well. So it's really gaining traction. We've briefed, you know, multiple UN agencies, UNFCCC, IPCC, World Meteorological Organization, the Secretary General's team as well. And everybody is seeing this issue as one of the key blockers to the climate action that we all need. Mm. Yeah, I I think, you know, you're so right in what you're saying that it needs the partnership of 
civil society, public office, public institutions, as well as the private sector. That was one of the things that really stood out for me on COP26 to sort of tackle this challenge, as you say, as in within the Can Manifesto, it's a defining issue of our times and battling misinformation, but also education actually about how far on or off track we are to sort of addressing that. And, you know, Stephen, I know with AdNet Zero and the Advertising Association, one of the driving initiative behind that is to help build behaviour change and drive education uh, around how we become more climate conscious and more sustainable in what we make and how we make it. Now, again, going back to, you know, say, a livable situation and it being a defining issue of our times, with many of the recent challenges that we've seen, we have seen national involvement and national uh, resources dedicated toward that advertising that drive behaviour change or, you know, battle misinformation. We saw it recently with, with vaccine hesitancy. Do you think that we should be seeing more at a national level, more involvement from governments to support advertising campaigns in the industry to battle information with dedicated resources? Or is this really primarily always a responsibility of our industry and those within the private sector, given our relationship with consumption that is part of the root causes of environmental impact? Well, I think first and foremost, we have to get our own house in order. Mm-hmm just calling for if like government action if we weren't taking action i think would be almost like an abrogation of our responsibility and i think whenever you read anything about what a business or any entity should do in in the face of challenge first of all get your own house in order make sure what you are doing what you need to do in your business or in your life or in your if you're in whatever sort of organization you are the start point for ad net zero was really about get our house in order and 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 we got to that not initial in the initial discussion we were initially talking about if you like, the messaging and the content of the advertising. But we soon realised that actually there's, no, there's, a, there's a sort of hypocrisy, if you like, in terms of just saying to you know, the advertisers, get your house in order, when our ecosystem also needs to get its house in order. And we don't, you know, we don't know what the carbon footprint of the global advertising industry is, but the, the number that we estimate is between 50 and 60 million tonnes. So if you think about the end-to-end journey of creating, uh, making, placing, distributing advertising, let's say it's in that order of magnitude. We may be out by 10, 20 million, but it's that sort of, that's a big number. There are plenty of businesses in our industry that have gone from whatever their footprint was, reduced it by 80, 90% by just taking action and really addressing all the issues in their supply chains. And most of the big businesses in our industry have also set their own objectives, their own pathways to net zero for their operations. So we can see that there is a big desire to get our house in order. AdNet Zero started in the UK. We announced in Cannes, a different Cannes, the other one in south of France, in the summer with support companies like Dentsu, that we're going to extend that programme globally. So we've got currently uh, 10 businesses that have joined that programme. So all of the big six agency holding companies, Google, Meta, Unilever and Sky. We're talking to another eight or nine companies about joining that. Hopefully we'll have about around about 20 global organisations in our industry that are committed to getting our house in order globally. And if you think about the UK's 5% of ad global ad spend, the US is 40%. You know, we have to make this work in the US if we're going to start making a difference in our industry. But I think the really big opportunity and the big challenge, in a sense, is the messaging that we produce on behalf of every sector of the industry. We've just started over the last year tracking ad spend in, if you like, big emitting categories. So if you take food, you know, big part of the emissions uh, in, in the economy is food production and distribution and consumption. In fact, I heard yesterday that food waste, food waste alone, if it were a country, would be the third biggest country in terms of emissions, which is why things like Oddbox and all these things to reuse food that would have been chucked away are so good. So we've looked at those categories and looked at the growing spend in those categories that is supporting low carbon 
no-carbon alternatives. And a really good example, and I think the car industry is probably the industry that's going through the most rapid transition. So, you know, obviously, transport is, a, I think, the, the biggest single category of emissions in terms of consumption. I think it's around about 20%, of which personal transport through cars is a big, big part of. The ad spend on car advertising in 2022 in the UK will be 70% for EVs and hybrids. And that's about one in six sales. So the ad spend is way, way ahead of the sales. Right. And of course, those manufacturers all know that 2030, they're not going to sell any more petrol diesel cars. So whatever happens, you know, with almost with the oil price and the rest of it and all the current dramas that we're living through, demand is going to fall because mm. the vehicles are going to gradually start declining as a share of the market. Each car lasts 14, you know, on average, a car lasts 14 years. So those last few petrol and diesel cars that were the last cars that sold in 2019 are going to be off the road by 2045 or so. So you can see that transition's happening. So cars is probably the most pronounced. Uh, we're looking at similar data in other big markets. I'd imagine France and Germany and America will probably be the same. So, you know, we are seeing that transition. And But in a way, the transition in terms of the messaging, you know, that's a case of it going ahead of the change of the market. So I think when markets are on that transition, we saw in food, in food advertising, for example, a huge rise in spend in meat-free alternatives either meat-free meats or promoting plant-based meals. And of course, you know, we've seen the massive rise in consumption of, of non-meat. So you, you can see in these big, high-emitting parts of the economy, we're seeing change happen. But it can, it can really only go at the, the pace of change of the technologies in those industries. And I think the interesting thing coming on to the role of government, government has set, I mean, the UK government has, I think is not alone in setting, to, setting 2030 as a, as a cut-off date for, for new petrol and diesel. But that has really helped accelerate that change. Mm. And, it, and I don't know whether you remember back to when it was announced. It was announced, and you might have thought, God, this announcement is going to cause uproar in the car industry. Cause not a bit of uproar, because they already knew that they were going to do it. And I think, you know, we see this in it, and this is, I think, the role of government is to set ambitions and parameters for societal and economic change. And the car industry is a fantastic example of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I completely agree with you in terms of government setting uh, ambition but equally as important is the sort of demand generation from the consumer side and you know your point around the automotive industry and fast food you've seen many many of the fast food restaurants shifting their menus to being plant-based many of the automotive companies are looking at mobility as a, as a service and a solution which is beyond you know car ownership and more sustainable way of their them moving their businesses um, going forward so there is innovation opportunity for businesses there if you embrace the cultural drive that's you know changing those demands but that also is enabled as you say by you know uh, government ambition and view on regulation and then critically messaging to support that that sort of change in behavior and i think it's a really there was a i don't know whether you, you saw it there was a I think probably about a year ago, uh, a report by the Tony Blair Institute called Planes, Automobiles and Homes. And it was basically calling for you know, widespread education of the public about the changes that are going to need to happen. And they are very significant, but they're not like the end of the modern way of life. We're going to have to fly much, much less. But it doesn't mean you can never fly. And I remember we had a meeting about a year ago with the airline industry trade body, and they're on their own pathway. Now, I mean, imagine how, how hard that is for basically a fossil fuel-powered industry. But they know that they won't have a sustainable business if they don't make a transition to non-fossil fuel-powered air travel because people won't do it or it'll be taxed out of existence or it'll be socially unacceptable. So, you know, everybody, every, even the most heavily if you like, entrenched industry in terms of burning hydrocarbons knows that it's going to change and has, and has identified the route. Yeah. And we were like, we were all looking at this this guy speaking from the airline industry and we're thinking, how on earth are you going to do that? They said, well, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's already happened. We're going to have 
hydrogen-powered planes or blah, 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 you know, whatever the technologies are going to be. I heard this morning there's a fantastic Harvard psychologist on the, on the radio this morning called Professor Pinker. And he's always, when the Today programme gets so gloomy that they can't go on, they bring him out <laughs> to sort of have a little bit of balance. And he was saying that entropy means that everything always gets worse. Yeah, it's one of the physical laws of nature. And so the great ingenuity of human beings is that they intervene to stop things getting worse. And I think that innovation that we're seeing in things like the car industry or in foods, you know, who'd have thought McDonald's would be putting so much money behind a plant burger? Yeah. And I don't know if anybody's tried them. They're really good. Mm. So you wouldn't be able, if you didn't know it was called McPlant, you would never know. So you see, you see this change and this ingenuity that was responding to the problem. So I think the more you look at it in a way, the more you think ultimately if governments set the right ambitions – and if you like, let loose the competitive, innovative forces of businesses to mm. compete their way uh, to do these things. And we, I had a great phrase, actually, uh, that was about pre-competitive collaboration. And AdNet Zero is a really good example of pre-competitive collaboration. It's the industry coming together, all, all of the big six holding companies coming together to say there are things we need to do collectively so that we're all on the same, same direction of travel. We're all working towards the same thing. And then we'll compete like hell to get there quicker, better. Mm more impressively on behalf of our clients and, and whatever. And I think it's a really nice freight for a lot of industries. They're looking at that sort of pre-competitive collaboration to address these big challenges. Yeah, pre-competitive collaboration. That's, that's a nice I, phrase, yeah, isn't it? One I'll take back to the agency. Yeah, I great, heard it and I've used week. it a lot since I heard it. <laughs> I want to come back to something that you said at the very beginning as well about get, you know getting your house uh, in order, really. And you know you have to, every industry, many of the ones that you've described, to get to that point of innovation has actually had to look deeply internally at its you know its processes its value chain and sort of the you know the future that faces it and so then coming to you Anna in a you know a business as vast as Dentsu um, you know global organization spanning many many markets where there is often different sort of cultural societal government attitudes towards climate accountability and sustainability how do you drive collective uh, progress to to Stephen's point across a business as vast and as diverse as that? And how do you, how do you maintain success and, and critically accountability? It's a really good question. And I think it applies to many organisations. And just before I answer it, I think it's, I, I just want to build um, for a moment on Stephen's point there. Dentsu um, is a UK headquartered, Dentsu International is a UK headquartered company. And the UK was the first country in the world to set a net zero target and ambition. And as a result, we have our carbon budgets. So we've seen the policy change that results on the back of that automotive being a fantastic example. And we've seen how clients and brands have responded to that. That's a huge opportunity for business transformation and innovation. And the the revenue opportunity associated with the SDGs in this sector alone is valued at about $11 trillion by 2030. So this pre-competitive collaboration is the right concept because the pie is big enough for everyone. But it also gives us a huge competitive advantage because we know the change that's going to happen. For example, in the US, we're already living it here. So actually, we have an opportunity to work with global brands and brands in other countries to really help guide that transition and really get ahead of the curve. And I think that's important. And that's going back to your question about how do you make that happen in, in a market or a, a company like Dentsu. I mean, Dentsu is 60,000 people. We operate in 145 markets. We probably spoke a similar number of languages. But um, really, when you approach sustainability within the corporate context, it is a business transformation agenda. And just 
like any other business transformation agenda. You have to build the enabling environment. You have to build the right culture to make that change. And for me, that always starts starts with four things. And the, the first is that compelling narrative. So when you go into the organisation, it's exciting and inspiring people around the opportunity to make that change. And I think quite often we talk about, you know, climate. It is the climate crisis. You know, it can be quite depressing when you're thinking about the air that you breathe, you know, the water that you drink, the food that you need to survive. But actually within our industry, advertising has been part of the problem historically, but we are a huge part of the solution and we should not underestimate that. And the IPCC report, you know, talks about the change that needs to be made to achieve net zero. And for, for a long time, we recognised that we need infrastructural decarbonisation. And we know there are big industries like cement and steel that we need to tackle, food, food waste being a huge one. But actually in April, they're, they're latest report talked about demand-side mitigation or demand-side activation, which is basically the pull for low-carbon products, lifestyles. And what they said was this had been massively underestimated in strategies to date, mm. but potentially could deliver up to 70% of the emissions reduction needed to achieve net zero. And that demand-side activation is driven by marketing. It's driven by advertising. So at this point, this industry becomes a massive part of the solution. And I think that's a huge opportunity. And for us driving that change in Dentsu, starting, it's helping people to understand that actually, you know, if you are creative, if you are innovative, if you really want to be part of the solution, then this is actually the sweet spot and the perfect place to be. So I think creating that compelling narrative is really important. The second thing is role modelling. This has to be driven by leadership. It has to be driven by the C-suite. It can't be dri driven by a sustainability team. We're very lucky that we have a CEO who's very enlightened. Wendy Clark sits on the CEO. CEO, the World Economic Forum CEO, Climate Alliance. She's very personally passionate about this agenda. She has three young children she has to answer to. So she is very much thinking about the future and wants to do the right thing. And our Japanese heritage as well, the Japanese mindset is very much around, they talk about medicine, Eastern and Western medicine. It's very much about treating the cause, not the symptom. So it's really looking in the long term. And because we're Japanese, we have a hundred term plan, a year plan as well as a three year plan. So it's really taking that long term view. And that helps. So, you know, having an enlightened leadership right driven from the C-suite is really, really important. And the third thing is skills. And I know this is the manifesto talks about this. I can't underestimate this enough. Your board, your executive teams have to be climate competent. Your people have to be climate competent. And we've invested really, really heavily in upskilling and training our people, starting with the board. So actually, we, we work very closely with the University of Cambridge. We've had people in to meet with our board members. We've had people going through online training, not just our marketeers. We have people on the sustainable supply chain course. We have people on the sustainable finance course. So people really are trying to deeply understand this agenda so that they are informed and educated and can understand the change and really importantly how they can be part of that. And then the fourth thing, and I think this is um, the manifesto really majors on this, is the reinforcement mechanisms and making it real. So I think I've seen faster movement within Dentsu since we tied our executive bonuses to ESG. I can strongly <laughs> recommend it. But we've also we've also tied £500 million of revolving credit as well. So long-term financing against metrics related to decarbonisation, against Scope 1 and 2 and Scope 3, but also gender equality as well. We have an ethics and compliance gateway. So, so really trying to put those reinforcement mechanisms in place. And once you have, if you have those four elements in place in any business, mm. whether you're a 10-person business or 
a a 10,000 person business, you can really start to see that senior change being driven from the top all the way through the business, every function, every service line. And that's that's been really key. And it's really important because we are one of the first companies in the world to set a net zero target and have it approved by the Science-Based Target Initiative. And that means we have to change everything in our business. It means reducing flights by 65%. It means reducing technology by about 70%. So we have to change out the way that we work. Yeah. And sort of goes back to that old adage you said of really putting your money where your mouth is with those reinforcement mechanisms, because you're then baking it integrally into into the business and keep everybody focused on on the objectives sort of uh, intrinsically. Susie, sort of coming on, on to you and the, sort of the, the brand side, talk us through some of the things that SSE have been doing to deliver on the CAN Climate Manifesto as an organisation, one of the sort of leading energy companies that's a part of the network. Um, how are you working in partnership with, with your agencies and you know, what are some of the uh, initiatives you've been driving as a business to deliver on the Climate Change Manifesto? Yeah, so I mean, I think brands have a really important role to play in this and obviously you know we work very closely with can um, for the last couple of years have learned huge amounts um, that us and our marketing teams had not sort of thought about before but we also work really collaboratively with our agencies and what Stephen and Anna were saying about working in collaboration is really really important we you know to get everybody's house in order and that might just be very practical steps about sitting down and saying we've got a shoot coming up you know do we need to travel does everybody need to travel do we actually could we actually reuse what we ran last year or other materials out there so we don't actually even need to do the shoot through to like making sure that you're going to offset your carbon emissions to much bigger things so you know we we have lots of different businesses that sit within SSE so I'm working with different marketing teams to sort of talk to them about the work that Conscious Advertising Networks does and to really think about their advertising practices and that could be anything from you know are they thinking about the person on this in their ad are they riding around on a bicycle or are they driving a diesel car you know then you think about things like that but also look at some of the tools particularly from the climate manifesto and if you go into the conscious advertising network website and sort of look at the sustainability climate manifesto there's some really great tips and tools that you can be sharing with your teams internally things that they can be doing some of the things that SSE have done is last year obviously in the run-up to COP27 we wanted to engage our employees much more in what was going on they couldn't all be there but we wanted them to feel part of it and we partnered with the supply chain sustainability school and they ran a climate academy for us and it was six sessions that employees could dial in listen to and learn more about sustainability even though we're quite a sustainable organization in terms of the product that we have there's still a lot of work to do with employees to make them to understand you know what what they can do about it. So we've got quite a lot of partnerships like that. You know, SSE are part of the Race to Net Zero, which is obviously a UN-backed sort of campaign to sort of take action to reduce emissions and are held accountable to science-based targets, like Anna was saying. So there's quite a lot of work internally. And then just in the last two years, I've really sat down with our media and creative agencies. We just did a creative agency pitch last year and made sure in the RFP that sustainability was an important part of anybody winning that business, that they supported what we wanted to do with Conscious Advertising Network. And we really scrutinised their sustainability credentials and whether they were serious, because a lot of people could talk about it, but actually you need to put your money where your mouth is and show what you're doing about it. And since we've taken on board that agency, which was Iris you know, we've had several meetings with them and worked out, you know, what are they doing? What are we doing? What can we do better together to be a lot more climate conscious? And I guess the thing I would say is 
there's a long way to go. Um, it's like there's so much you could do. It can feel quite overwhelming, but actually even just small steps are really important. And just having those conversations with your agencies. I sat down with my media agency and said, we need to look at our brand safety block lists. You know, what does that even mean? And like, what do we have? And um, actually, it was a really interesting exercise. They say, well, quite often clients don't even bother to ask. But you could be, for example, excluding words like climate in your brand safety or things that you want to make sure actually you are advertising and promoting. So there's very basic things that you can do. I guess the other thing that SSE has done, I mean, we we don't have huge budgets. Uh, we don't spend huge budgets on advertising. But when we do do advertising, we think about it very carefully. We make sure that we are advertising and funding quality mm. journalism, mm. Um, making sure that where our advertising is going, it's not going to hopefully fund misinformation, disinformation. Um, so it's just working through very carefully your sort of media strategy and planning. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really the, that theme of collaboration uh, again, and what it can lead to in terms of sort of innovation and partnership obviously keeps keeps coming through. And Jay, I know in previous discussions, as um, Susie just mentioned, that bit around getting back to quality in, in media planning, and you know, you, you've got some particularly strong views around that, and you know uh, how it's a, a central part of conscious advertising in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, within the Conscious Advertising Network, you know, the the mission is to both break the economic model of advertising, funding, polarising content, content that divides us, genuine hate speech or incitement to violence. In the case of, you know, uh, um, NGOs that we're talking to in India, you know, actual genocidal, you know, content in, in India, for example. So it's confronting that. And so therefore, in this context, confronting you know, advertising, funding, outright climate misinformation and we define and worked with you know 20 climate or ngos and disinformation experts to put together this unified definition that was in the open letter um, that has three areas you know outright denial which is doesn't exist it's a hoax and it's not caused by humans you know cherry picking you know this glacier is not retreating so therefore there is no climate change uh, and also false solutions you know that that you know somehow digging loads more oil is going to solve this this problem you know so so there's 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 three uh, you know aspects to that if we let our advertising go across 40 50 60 70,000 websites that we don't know where that is we are and have we've got so many so much evidence across the open web across social platforms and also in some broadcast and and, and more mainstream media of that advertising funding outright denial you know recently we had a well-known newspaper talking about or an opinion piece you know we can disagree with opinion pieces but if it says there is no evidence to suggest that the climate has changed beyond historical fluctuations that is outright denial so so it's it's about going back to good old media planning understanding what you what you want your brand to sit next to what you know it's not just the context and investing in quality media and quality media can be a something that has only 10,000 you know unique users a month for example you know that's that can still be quality it's not necessarily size but also that that what are you funding? You know, and NewsGuard and, and Comscore did a piece of research saying that 2.6 billion is being sent from big brands to misinformation uh, websites and global uh, disinformation index also do a lot of studies and it's millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds. So the economic model that we're trying to confront where made for advertising sites, misinformation sites, and, you know, certainly with our other manifestos, sites that incite violence, you know, it's an economic model where our money is funding that stuff.
Yeah, it's it's sort of fueled and funded. And coming back to that point of consciously thinking about what it is that you are either directly or indirectly funding. Exactly. And and one of the things that we're working hard on is problem definition and collaborating with experts in the field to better define and use the precision of language is so important because if you ask multiple people, what do you mean by climate misinformation? And we've asked all of the platforms, you know, you'll get a different answer. You know, uh, we define it like we don't define it or other people define it, you know. And so it's really important that, you know, as we're all talking about collaborating on effectively the biggest brief of our lives, because this is affecting every single one of us, going to affect every single one of us in this room, in this city, in this country, in this world. You know, it, it is about problem definition and then all collaborating together on that problem because that's where we're going to get the best solutions. We probably all saw Greenpeace's uh, demonstrations at Cannes um, early on this year, uh, grabbed headlines, generated uh, much needed conversation around sustainability and you know, our industry's role. Um, and responsibility in you know, what we make and how we make it. One area of uh, conversation that it, it did sort of spark is the ongoing sort of uh, relationship and journey that many you know businesses in our industry have with fossil fuel companies or you know or with other companies that have significant uh, environmental impact. The debate circles between should agencies, should the industry take a stance on on working with such companies or shouldn't it? And to Susie's point earlier on, many agencies are. Um, pushing towards SBTs and being evaluated in pitches or in new business opportunities around the authenticity and the credibility of their own sustainability uh, commitments. The question is, is it time the industry took a collective step around working with fossil fuel companies or uh, companies that have significant environmental impact? Or is that just an oversimplistic approach to the challenge that we face? with themes of partnership that we've mentioned before. And it's quite an open question. I'll put that to, to you first, Stephen, um, at Association. And then I'll, I'd like to ask you as, as an agency leader, uh, Jake. I think one of the things that we have to look to, particularly as an industry body, is what's the freedom, if you like, to to put out in misinformation? What's the freedom to greenwash or not? And I think, you know, obviously in the UK and most other developed markets, there are content regulators in place. So the ASA is obviously the one here. But if you look across Europe, they're all pretty much of an ASA type organisation. And they are very collaborative as a group of, of they're called SROs, self-regulatory organisations, uh, particularly across Europe. And they collaborate intensively on particularly these sort of highly controversial areas. Environmental claims would be a very controversial area, along with things like HFSS foods or alcohol or gambling, things that, that in effect are socially, you know, potentially harmful or have social consequences if they're misused or, you know. So all of these things are very tightly regulated. The ASA here, which, um, you know, obviously the, the UK's regulator, conducted a, I think, well, th- all throughout 2021, a review of the rules that they have in place. They didn't actually change the rules because they felt in all the consultation that they, they they did across the industry and with all the various stakeholders who wanted to contribute, it's an open public consultation. They felt the rules were tight enough, but they changed the guidance around the rules. And the rules, when you look at them, are pretty substantial. I won't, I've got them here in front of me, but you know things like using a cradle-to-grave assessment when you're thinking about a product's or service's environmental impact. Don't mislead on the environmental benefit of a product service. And actually, when you look at the claims that are actually upheld, they tended to be for overly broad claims, you know, so, and actually mainly from food and drink companies, essentially, and, and, and other categories that you wouldn't immediately think of as greenwashing. So the rules are pretty 
tight on what you can and can't claim and how you can position your, your company's activities, and particularly, and I think it's particularly true of oil and gas companies, is the context that you put around the advertising that you do. And I think a very high-profile recent BP campaign is a, is a really good example. They're talking about, obviously, their investment in UK sustainable energy and all its different forms. But one of the things that really struck me about the posters and the press ads that I saw, and, I've, and I had a look this morning at the social media, you know, Meta have this fantastic library, as you know, of, of all, all the ads, is you can actually see how they're contextualising their claims. And the one that springs to mind about press ads, they talk about their investment of, I think, they're promising up to 18 billion, I think up to 2030. And it's going to be 40% of their investment by 2025, I think, are the, the key claims. And there's lots of blogs and stuff with their chief executives on that link off the off the advertising. But they actually put a paragraph of copy in there saying, just, well, I can't remember exactly the wording, but it says, to be clear, we're still investing the majority of our money in oil and gas because that's what the world is running on at the moment. And, you know, as recent events have shown, you know, we're all, we're all suffering from an incredibly difficult situation on that supply. So their argument would be, the world is making a transition. We're going to be part of that transition. Otherwise, we don't have a, much of a business after 2050. But in the meantime, we've got to supply secure and affordable energy to run people's lives at the moment. And we're all, you know, the news is wall to wall about the difficulties that we're in at the moment because of the Ukraine war. So, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult area. My, this is not an AA policy view. My personal view is if I were running an agency, I would look very deeply, if you like, at the strategy and the commitments that any high carbon advertiser, whether it's an oil or gas company or any energy company, is making. And I would probably, if I'm a public company, need to be accountable for that because my shareholders would also be asking me these questions. That The pressures on every business to change, to become sustainable, are, I would imagine, I, I don't know anybody in a, who works at an oil and gas company, but I'd imagine they're more acutely felt in those organisations than any. And, uh, you know, if they're making claims, they have to stand up to, first of all, pretty strict guidance on the claims that they make. And interestingly, looking at the most recent claims, I looked back for when, when the most recent, as far as the, one, the, the most recent complaint upheld against an oil company was in 2020. And you can imagine every time they, you know, if you're an oil or gas company, you put an ad out, it is going to be scrutinised, you know, rightly so, by all the various pressure groups. I was going to say, I think they are going to be scrutinised, uh, rightly by pressure groups. And the original question was about Greenpeace at Cannes. And I thought it was really unfortunate. It was well received, that work, actually, by a lot of the industry. And I think it was a pity that the guy that gave his uh, lion back was then kicked out. And, and I think that one of the things that we would advocate for is don't kick Greenpeace out. Put them on stage. You know, the, the activists and the NGOs have actually been right on this stuff for years. Mm. Everybody will remember that this was not an issue in the next decade for us, <laughs> as far as we understood it, you know, when I was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. This is now, if we've got to halve our emissions by 2030, one of the things that, that I feel very, very strongly and emotionally about is my kids are going to be 15 and 18 at that point, and I've got to answer their questions. You know, what did you do, Dad? You know, you knew. And that, and that you know, that horizon has come at us very, very quickly. So I think that that's changed I'll just, I'll just sort of pick up on the, the controversial point because I don't think climate is controversial. It's sometimes been turned into something that is in politics. I, I think that, that turning it... Yes, of course, we need policy to deal with it. 
But, you know, the latest IPCC, uh, you know, reports talk about, you know, this being unprecedented and human influence being unequivocal. And those uh, and that is, you know, due to greenhouse gas emissions, mainly from fossil fuels, but from food production and, uh, and others. So I don't think it's a, you know, the science isn't controversial. There is no, you know, it is consensus. It's about how, 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 we, how we deal with that. Jake, I was thinking, I was thinking more of, you know, our, certainly our industry is having a huge internal debate as much as uh, yeah. about what its position should be in relation to high carbon industries. Yeah, no, that's that, that's I, fair. I, I, I tell you, so it's not the science Fine. of it being yeah, controversial. Yeah, yeah. It's the fact that we, yeah, there are a lot of there's a, there's a really good debate actually about yeah. it, and I think I, that at, from what I've you know when I've talked to people in in agencies around this, they they are all very much reflecting on that in terms of their own policies. They're probably getting yeah. pressure from their own shareholders and, yeah. and, and so on, so and staff and other stakeholders. So Ete asked about, you know, as an agency and, and, you know, the stuff that we do at Media Bounty is, you know, we've set us at stall out very early. We've set ourselves up as an ethical agency and we've got to, you know, walk the walk and we do. We turn down and have turned down oil and gas. We've recently turned down two fast fashion brands that are very well known. We've turned down pesticides. We've turned down gambling. We turned down a lot of different stuff. And, you know, if we'd taken it on, we'd be much bigger, much more profitable, I'm, I'm sure. So so it does, it, it does obviously... Um, kick us in the wallet but but back to the the sort of questions that my kids have i think hopefully another kind of phrase is we treat it sort of radical with radical pragmatism when we turn these businesses down we do ask what are your plans to align to the paris climate agreement and if they say Duh, look over there <laughs> you know then we'll, we won't touch them with a barge pole i'm very much a believer that there's plenty of other organizations looking at historical uh, problems you know you may have seen you know the uh, big oil versus the world documentary on the bbc which is well worth watching you know we're too late for that we need to we need solutions now and business has to be a massive part of that so you know the bp campaign when it's talking about 40% investment, 18 billion. That's fine. But if it's aligned to 1.5 to 2 degrees, if it's not, it's just big numbers. You know, that's, that's you know, that there's, there's no getting away from that. So we have, you know, a, a fairly stringent criteria that, that we work with. And there's sort of five points to that. We do our own research. We look at ethical consumer. We look what's publicly available. If we're not sure, we will speak to experts in the industry. So with the fast fashion example, we spoke to experts within that industry about what they thought of that particular organization we talk to our team you know because we don't want to go here you go here's something that you really don't want to work on you know uh, and and so we consult with our team and actually when briefs do come into us some of our team go no thanks and that's actually brilliant for us because you know well that makes it even easier for us to go well actually we're not touching that with a barge pole we'll then talk to the client directly and say are we unaware of big plans that you have to align to, to, to science-based targets, you know, the race to net zero and the Paris Climate Agreement. And again, if the answer is actually we do and here it is, great, then we'll again, you know, consider that. We haven't, that hasn't been forthcoming yet, I'd have to say. And then obviously from an organisation, you know, we've got to, like I said, walk the walk. We've got to look at our own reputation as well. You know, we, you know, and our reputation both from our current clients, but like I said, our team as well, and, and decide what's what's best for the agency. So I do think that there's a, a collective point is an interesting one. And, you know, we might get in trouble with competition there. But I genuinely think that if an organisation is not aligned to Paris, some of the agencies that move first, and it won't be easy, won't be easy at all, but some of those that move first to say, 
we're not going to work with organisations, whether they be oil and gas or whether they be from anybody else, that isn't aligned to Paris, will have a competitive advantage because this is the only game in town. You know, like I said right at the start, we're on track to 2.4 to 2.7. So we've got to do a lot more than we've been doing to get to this point. Yeah, and I'll just build on that. I couldn't agree more, actually, Jake. And I, I think it is really important to invite the activists in as well, because then you can hold the mirror up to the organisation and potentially recognise your blind spots. And when we were developing Dancy's 2030 strategy, we brought Extinction Rebellion, we brought Greenpeace in and asked them what they felt the industry needed to be doing. And I think we need to recognise the organisation like that have really helped to raise the profile and shift um, this agenda. And Client Earth that sued BP for that advert, they won and that advert was removed. And I think what's really interesting, numbers aside, if you really look at the data, um, they were positioning themselves in that advert as a renewable energy company when 96% of the investment was going on fossil fuels. That's greenwashing. Any way you look at it, that is greenwashing and and that's dangerous. And I think that's something we need to recognise. When organisations greenwash, it does cloud the issue. On a global level, it prevents us from seeing the progress that we are making from net zero on what we need to do. And that puts the whole of humanity at lives at stake, billions of lives at stake. So that's something we need to be really super alert for. In answer to your question, Ete, whether or not we need a standard approach across industry, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. I think it's a very complicated space. I think we need to recognise that there are some organisations that actively greenwash, potentially deliberately. There are some that do it accidentally because they don't understand. And Stephen's point about cradle to grave, Innocent recently got in trouble for a really good product in a plastic bottle they hadn't thought about the end-to-end implications of that. Um, So I think it comes back to the education and the upskilling piece. But we do need to recognise that actually there are organisations that have fundamentally transformed their business models. 2050 is too late, but it only took Orsted 10 years to move from a fossil fuel company to a renewable energy company. It took Royal DSM 10 years to transition from a mining company to a diversified business. So business transformation can happen at a much more accelerated pace. And where an organisation is committed to make that transition from a dentist's perspective, we will absolutely lean in to help them to accelerate because we think it's the right thing to do. And I think that's really important. There are questions you can ask, and actually the manifesto has a load of brilliant questions in um, that you can ask your clients. Um, Some of them you've talked about, do you have a science-based target? Is it Paris aligned? Do you disclose via CDP? There are some very simple questions which will very quickly get to the root of whether or not an organisation is acting authentically. Even where does your sustainability team sit within the organisation? Does your brand team talk to them? You know, because really helping to understand whether those two agendas are connected, that's really important as well. At Dentsu, this is a live conversation at the Global Executive. We have resigned clients. We have declined new business. In one case, exactly as Jake said, we actually had people who stood up and said, no, thank you, I don't want to work on that client. And I think we need to recognise that will happen more. The next generation, we are in the middle of a talent war and people want to work for purpose-led organisations and they will choose to go to ethical media organisations because they will want to work on the solutions. So I think that's something we're very, very aware of. And um, we also need to recognise 
this is complex. And we talk about, um, as an exec team, we talk about the importance of flexing our ethical muscle. You know, we need to look at the social and environmental implications. We also need to look at the commercial implications. Because as Jake says, you know, it does come at a cost if you walk away from business and you need to be able to prepare to do that. You need to be comfortable that's the right thing. And you need to be aligned as a team as well when you do that. So I don't think there's a one size fits all. But I do think it's, to quote the front page of the manifesto, it's time to pick a side. And I think as an industry, we really need to be thinking, do we want to be on the right side of the future or not? Yeah, I think that's a really good point to, to think because the right side of the future, you know, there's obviously debate and there's misinformation out there. But increasingly, it feels like the business world is on the right side of this. You know, the direction of travel is on the right side of this. One of the things that and I'm, I only went to a COP for the first time in Glasgow. But I was talking to somebody who'd been to them, I don't know, how, 10 of them or something like that. And she was saying that the really big difference about COP26 was that the business world was there in force and... CEOs were there, not sustainability leads and, and so on. It was the CEOs were there and there was real, you know, quite profound engagement across the whole spectrum of the economy in the change. And I think that's something that ultimately this becomes, you know, there's, there's an inexorability about this, that, that consumer power, employee power, uh, shareholder pressure, all of these things, they're all pointing the same direction government legislation the rules of around claims that you can make etc all of this is a, is in a way if your company was thinking we are going to plow our commercial success and our future on greenwashing misleading and winging it it's quite, you might want to do that but it's a high risk strategy i would say it's higher risk than it used to be it worked yeah. 25 years ago yeah. but it yeah. can't it and can't I think that, work that documentary now. is a really good example yeah, yeah, yeah. of a, a, you know of an industry that is I'm not going to get into the name, naming names, mm. but there was one particular offender on, I think, in that that shareholder pressure has mm. forced mm. to change. Mm. You know, and they were almost as the, of the oil majors pointed as the one that that they're the least resi- they're the most resistant to change. Yeah, they are changing because their shareholders said enough. You need to do this because you're on the wrong side of history. And I think that's a great thing here. Our we we know from research that we did right before we launched. Well, before we launched Ad Net Zero, we did we had obviously a very engaged group of people from our members thinking about the challenges around this and all the rest of it. And actually, to that point about Extinction Rebellion, it was at the time, I think we had our first meeting at the time of that Oxford Street takeover. Uh, so it was very much front and centre of of the sort of our consciousness in terms of the, 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 the protests and so on. But one of the things that we did was a piece of research as well amongst the, the people working in, in advertising. I think it was the number one concern that people had. Am I part of the problem? And then we looked at things that businesses could do. And one of the interesting things was that if that number one concern flipped almost entirely to a massive driver of employee satisfaction, if they felt and believed that their company was part of the solution. And you were talking about what you've been doing at Dentsu and SSE. I'd imagine if, you know, communicated back, that makes your employees proud to work for your organisations. Because they know, well, whatever the they're doing over there, we are on the right side of mm. of, of history here, and I think it's an incredibly important. Yeah, point. I, I want to sort of touch on that point as you mentioned the sort of necessity, like the commercial imperative that's been driven by shareholders, by consumers, but most importantly also by employees, right? And that employee drive and activation and just engagement with the necessary business transformation and change. And you talked on it uh, slightly earlier, Susie, and it'd be good to hear a bit more from. 
from your point of view around that employee groundswell and engagement um, yeah, as, as you've been going through this transformation as a business and, and sort of you know delivering on the manifesto? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean we've, SSE's probably got about 12,000 employees and um, it's quite interesting, actually. They are very proud to work for SSE, but some of them don't actually feel like they're necessarily playing their part in net zero. They're playing, they're, they're just doing their job. So it's actually, we, we're reaching out to them and saying, you're playing a huge part in net zero um, and to galvanise them because, you know, they might move to a different company, but we want them to take that enthusiasm and that commitment to net zero. And that even if you're sat in the office looking at finances, you're still playing a massive part in getting to net zero. So I think it's really important to continue to continue be engaging your employees and make them realize the difference they can make um you know we look at you know diversity and diversity of thought and actually we welcome that and try and encourage people to come in and work for us because we know we're going to need that to get to net zero we can't just rely on what we've already got so um i think employee engagement is really important and it's interesting because you know there are a lot of people for example that are coming from oil and gas industries and are now having to convert into renewable energy and you know we need to support them in that sort of transition over the sort of just transition we call it but into more renewable energy and it's working with you know people in our company but also sort of attracting new talent and getting them to come and work for us is really important and showing them the importance of what we all need to do but yeah I would say you know once once I personally you know I absolutely love working for SSC it's got an amazing purpose and what they're trying to do is incredible and it's really really tough but um, and I think that that sort of filters if that you can get your employees thinking about that and what role they have to play in getting to net zero that's part of the success really. Yeah we're seeing that more and more I think across a whole range of sectors employee activism and you know employee power actually driving change as much as consumer activism and consumer yeah. power. And you can see the the younger ones coming through are brilliant. They only want, you know, they want to work for companies that are, are doing positive good things um, or else they're not going to come and work for us yeah. if they don't see that. I, th- I think, uh, you know, that point about, you know, Anna's point about picking a side and, 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 you know, drawing the line. I think that there's such an opportunity now to do things in a different way you know i can't remember the phrase you used stephen but it was maybe maybe pre pre something you know competitive collaboration i really like that but i also think that that collaboration on this big problem and radical collaboration on this big problem is the critical challenge for us in this industry because i think that you know this like i said this problem is Universal. It's a problem that is going to affect all of us, all of our families, and, uh, uh, and 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 so on. So I think that bringing the outside in, bringing activists in, you know, genuinely engaging with with employees, getting the C-suite climate literacy and and and, and climate competency, using climate the, the the climate language, and government, and policymakers, and multilateral institutions like the UN, holding that coalition together is also a huge job that all of us have responsibility to do because that because the science ain't going to change if anything it's going to get worse you know and 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 more quickly so holding that you know the, we can't we can't advertise to science you know that's not going to change so holding that unusual coalition together and holding that spirit of humanity together is going to be this critical thing whether they be business activist families society employees industry government and so on because there's already you know what we see is a lot of backsliding misinformation about net zero itself for example calls to scrap net zero for example you know that that 
sort of siren call of oh it's just going to be easy and we'll save all this money if we scrap net zero mm. well we ain't gonna you yeah. know so so i think that holding that coalition together on uh, and focusing on the problem is a, is a critical job for for all of us great segue into our sort of final question as we sort of wrap up for time um which i'll ask uh, around the table but with COPS 27 fast approaching. What are each of your sort of hopes for the outcome of COP 27 as it pertains to what we've been discussing with regards to the industry, to misinformation, to employee engagement? Um, I'll start with you, Anna. I probably would just continue to advocate for science-based targets. There are too many organisations that don't have Paris Align. We need people to set them. But also what I'd like to see at COP 27 is a price on carbon. Yep. Jake? We would like to see, we called for it last year, a recognition of a universal definition of climate misinformation for, you know, the governments that attend COP, but critically in that final decision, because climate misinformation delays climate action. So so all of the work and, the, and also the business opportunities that are in this space are delayed by misinformation. Mm. And yes, they're delayed in order to potentially prop up the status quo, but but I, I guess a uh, a recognition at that level that climate misinformation is a threat and for it to go into the decision so countries are also responsible for dealing with that issue. Mm. Yep. Susie? I mean, obviously COP27 is a global event and you want um, everything to happen from a global perspective, but um, I just hope that we can reignite some of the enthusiasm and act Activity that happened last year around COP26 because it mm. was based in the UK and everyone was talking about it and it was on the news. Um, danger is this year it's in Egypt, so it's a lot mm. more distant. So um, I'm sure you know a lot of people will still be going to it, but like, how do we make sure that it's still talked about and mm. very much front of mind um, over that period, but also in the run up to it? Absolutely, Stephen. Well, I'm going to be very parochial <laughs> because we're going to do our second global summit on Ad Net Zero. We did the first one at Glasgow. We were actually in Glasgow at STV Studios, which happened to overlook the whole thing. So we had a lovely backdrop. We are not going to be overlooking anything in Sharm El Sheikh. We will be online uh, from uh, a studio near Regent's Park, actually. So uh, we're live from London, but it will be a global, open to anybody, free conference. We had 2,000 people from 35 countries for the first one. And it was just talking about a UK initiative which I think is shows the appetite for this in our industry. We will be global by the time we get to COP27. So we're going to hopefully have this amazing group of companies that's already come together, but maybe another eight, ten companies that are going to come and join us that are the leading players in our industry globally. And I think, to, to just to echo Jake's point, is this coming together. That will be the first time 20 businesses in our industry have come together I think for anything, I think the big six networks got together around the SDGs at Cannes in 2017 or 18. But 20 businesses, you know, from tech through to uh, big advertisers, agency groups, consulting firms and so on, all coming together to really focus on what advertising can do to accelerate the change in the way that our economy works, that has a change in the way that helps us change the way we live. And I think that's an amazing opportunity there. And you know, we won't get it all right, and we won't. We'll, you know, but we're on. We're on our way. And I think this going back to this sort of right side of history thing. We're on our way. We're on the journey. And like every journey, you know, that first one, we announced Ad Net Zero in the UK in November, twenty twenty, and we had no members. And we said we're going to do a global conference in November twenty twenty one at Glasgow. We thought, hopefully, somebody will turn up, and hopefully, we'll have some <laughs> members who you know. And we had a hundred members 
and 2,000 people from 30 countries. By the time we get to COP27, we'll have, I hope, around about 20 global organisations. I hope we have 10,000 people from across our industry around the world come and attend this. And we'll be talking about the progress that we're making. You know, we've got some great progress on things like with our ad green production program, which is being widely used now across the industry. We need to make big progress around media frameworks. There's lots of other things we need to get our own house in order. But then we'll also be looking at the changes happening in the industry's output. In fact, in October, we will have had the first uh, campaign ad net zero awards. So the first awards in our industry that are entirely about sustainability. All, all awards, I think, are all about, in effect, celebrating excellence and showcasing best practice. And, 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 and so that, that, uh, that will, I think, hopefully give us some great case histories and things to, to look at that uh, uh, point the direction for the future. So I'm, I'm much more focused on our, our little program that's becoming a big global program. So, you know, that's a really exciting thing for us. Yeah, but and it's central to what you're saying, I guess the, the, the key thing that I've taken away from this brilliant discussion is how collaboration is so central to tackling what, what really is the defining challenge of, of our era and of our, of our generation. So thank you to our guests, Jake Dubbins, Anna Longley, Stephen Woodford and Susie Rook. Also, thank you to our Densu creative editorial and production teams who are powering this whole series. The Nerve Music Library for our soundtrack and to all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing to the series wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, go to ConsciousAdNetwork.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.